Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm Sarah Watt. And I'm William Chen. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing The Speed Cubers, which was released on Netflix this year, and The King of Kong, which came out in 2007 when we could still go to the cinemas. The connection being that they are both films about obsessive gaming and puzzle competitions. I'd like to point out that we are recording this via Zoom. Shout out to Zoom. If you didn't buy shares in Zoom before lockdown, shame on you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> apologies for any um, garbling of audio. We will do our best to keep this as clean as possible. And just be warned that there will be spoilers for both of these films. So please, if you don't want those films ruined, pause this and come back and listen once you've watched both of them. All right, I'm going to pass it over to uh, Mr. William Chen to give us a bit of an overview of one of our films. Off you go, William. Thank you, Jeremy. So Speed Cubers from director Sue Kim, released on Netflix in um, July 2020. And it's ostensibly about the rivalry between two members of the speed cuber community competition for solving a rubik's cube the quickest so from the united states we have max park and from australia felix zemdags and kind of their rivalry and friendship leading up to the 19 world cube championship held in melbourne australia brilliant thank you william and sarah do you want to give us a bit of an overview of the king of kong the king of kong is uh, I guess it could now be called a cult documentary from 2007, um, directed by Seth Gordon, about whom we'll hear a little more later. And it's a documentary that looks at two, and well, more than two, but principally two grown men who are absolutely obsessed with becoming the world champion Donkey Kong players uh, and who vie for that championship, not always in pleasant ways. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and who would like to kick us off? Where are we starting this conversation about these two documentary films? I hadn't seen either. And so, because I think that you at least, William, had seen King of Kong, hadn't yeah. you? I hadn't seen either. And I watched Speed Cubers first. And I thought, oh, isn't this lovely? Competition can be so compassionate and so supportive. And what a wonderful story for 2020 to know the world is going in a good direction. And then I watched King of Kong. <laughs> and I didn't have a lot of nice things to say about anything in King of Kong, not the production values, not the hairstyles, not the baggy t-shirts, uh, or the uh, somewhat misogynistic attitudes. Sarah, we, we were all of us alive in the mid-2000s, so... I know! I don't know what you're talking about! <laughs> Perhaps I'm just bitter because maybe nobody called me um, a, a DDG. <laughs> oh, my drop gosh. Dead gorgeous. That was horrible, eh? Mm, I think what's more horrible and hilarious is the bloke who right at the beginning says, I wanted the pretty girls to notice me and say, Hi, you're good at centipede. Uh, <laughs> can we talk about um, Billy Mitchell's hair? I feel like that was one of the key characters in The King of Kong. 
I almost would love to have seen that film through the perspective of his hair. Like it's, you know, a character within an ensemble. Oh, I, I mean, you, there were several shots where it was from the perspective of his, of his hair. Um, especially one particularly prominent one where the camera's right behind him oh. and you see nothing but his mullet center frame. It's amazing. There's even a shot of him blow drying it. Yeah. yeah, and then and you see him. The, the e part of his evil setup montage, where you know he was combing and blow drying his hair, ready to you know commit commit heinous crimes. Yeah. Through that. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because that's one of the things that I really appreciated about the filmmaking of the King of Kong. It has a clear villain, it has a clear antagonist and protagonist, and that first opening fifteen minutes or ten minutes or whatever it was that sets up Billy Mitchell as the the master of donkey kong i'm like this guy's an idiot oh, i can't stand this guy is this the guy that i'm gonna have to sit with for the next you know hour and 17 minutes whatever it was um mm. but it's brilliant because it sets up steve weeby as the underdog it's that it's a classic story um but yeah billy mitchell what a what a villain it's it's interesting because i i don't think you can script something that's more dichotomous than billy mitchell and steve um, when it's when you're first introduced, of course, Steve Weeby, he, he's just been unemployed. He has these two screaming kids. His wife talks about his history of like always failing at things. Like he's <laughs> talented, and yet happened and that happened, and life just got in the way. And then you see him as a junior high science teacher, and he, he talks about how he's working. 12 to 14 hours a day and it's like oh this poor sad sack i i love him so much i think that the, the resonance that you as a science teacher have for him i i think is rather gorgeous i think also why did no one call him dweeby weeby <laughs> but you're so right william because it's a documentary and we're watching this real life guy who honestly just looks like the nicest man alive and nice but dull but nice still playing and playing over three, four days, playing the joystick. And you think you couldn't have scripted that into a drama film without it being, yeah, whatever, you make him way too nice. So it's interesting that this is unreal. That's just how he is. Yeah. And the same thing goes for Billy Mitchell, I think. Like he, he's always been, you know, just this, this larger than life figure in the video game community. But maybe because now he knows that a, a documentary camera is on him and he maybe he's playing it up a little bit. But my goodness, just the, the things he says and the looks he gives to the camera, like it's, it, it's very, very difficult to believe in some places that this is a real person and not an actor just hamming yeah. it up. The USA moment, hey? The USA where he's like, what would my three letters be? What, did you see what I wore yesterday? <laughs> His, his arrogance. It's interesting you say, um, William, about him sort of maybe knowing that, I mean, obviously he knew the camera was on him. There's that excruciating scene towards the end of the film where Steve Wiebe's been brought back, God bless him, flown 3,000 miles to um, defend, uh, sort of actually defend a title that the other dude could hardly be bothered to turn up for. Anyway, you know how there's that, oh, it's excruciating. The, sh the camera is on Steve playing earnestly concentrating on the, the machine. And in the background, Mr. Hairdo turns up with his buxom wife. You could almost call her a trophy wife. Um, uh, and so, and Mr. Hairdo turns up and then actually I feel like he has a self-consciousness 
about him that he doesn't quite know how to act natural on camera. So there's just a whole lot of him ignoring the guy. You know, it's that really dumb, you turn up at a party, there's the person you don't want to see. So you act natural like you haven't seen them. So you don't have to talk to them. And then it's just all a bit orcs, you know? Oh, that, that scene was incredible, Sarah. And I, I love the filmmaking in that scene as well. Because the, the people, the director and the, the camera people, they, they knew to just keep the camera rolling. Like, <laughs> there was no, they needed no narration, no editing, no nothing they else. Did, they yeah. zoom and stuff, though, don't oh, they? Oh, yes. yes. I'm sorry. Yes, they, they do zoom in when Billy Mitchell comes in. And it's just <laughs> this, this perfect, perfect, awkward series of events. And of course, uh, Billy, uh, sorry, Steve says, oh, hey, Billy. And Billy says something a lot. He doesn't, he just ignores him and talks to his wife and says like, oh, there's, there's some people I'd, I'd rather not associate with. And that is that. <laughs> oh, it's awful. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's talk about some of the, um, I guess, mythology or real life elements around the film. So there's a couple of things, which is that both Billy and Steve have said that they, are, they were on much more friendlier terms than the film shows um, that there was another person that actually was involved in the, the record taking that was removed for narrative purposes. And the directors said, Oh yeah, I, I admit it makes a more interesting film. If we make them look like these sort of the David and Goliath sort of story. Um, but then there's that, I guess I was aware of the, the videotapes were being were deemed as fraudulent in 2018 but then, William, you posted last night that they've been that's since been redacted. So, what is people's knowledge of? Because that was because it was so clearly a weird tape. There was such a what was that about yeah. with the like fuzzy line going through the scores? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what the? <laughs> what yeah. do people? What do people know? Like, what's the story that people are aware of? So uh, apparently, uh, the scores for Billy's records were reinstated by Guinness Book of Records in 2020, but Twin Galaxies. Uh, the original score takers, they still have not reinstated them. And so so I read online after watching the movie, uh, so Billy Mitchell has taken them to court about these scores. It's interesting. Yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff. This film, he would hate this film, eh? Like, this film makes him out to... Like, I, I, all the things that he cares about would be really damaged by this movie, beyond, I guess, no, there's no such thing as bad press, but yeah... I know we're not meant to talk about things we see on the internet and we only read the headline, but I'm about to. Um, I did see on a quick Google search that I think it was Brian Koo who has come out or came out a few years ago and said the whole film was completely fictitious. Um, and of course, A, he kind of probably would because he comes off as the biggest sap and he's the right-hand man of Billy. He's the <laughs> guy who's like... But I think wishes he was a political aide or something. And he's the guy on the phone in the kitchen going, um, just so you know, he's got to 250,604. Are you coming in? No? Oh, okay, okay. I'll keep you updated. You know, I mean, it's just like, ugh. And that guy <laughs> apparently retired at 30. Well, to do what, I don't know, because apparently he's still like hard out trying to play. Oh, I couldn't stand him. So, oh my gosh. Uh, so Sarah, thank you so much for bringing up Brian, because Brian Koo and Steve Sanders, those two guys in the movie, I feel like possibly they come off worse than Billy Mitchell. Because they're these, they're these sycophants and these... Yes. The, I mean, the word disciple is thrown around a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
they just reminded me of Grima Wormtongue from the Lord, the Lord of the Rings. Like this, <laughs> this person hanging around Saramonga, like, yes, master, I shall yeah. do what you yeah. I, I love, it's what well, I love, but I hate that scene towards the end when they're all of the, uh, what I don't even know what they, the elite gaming community are in the restaurant. And for some reason, Steve's mic'd up and, and we hear him say, oh, hold on, just, he doesn't talk like this. I don't know why I'm doing this accent, but I've started, so I'll finish. Oh, wait a second. Um, okay, actually, uh, Steve Weeby has just walked in. He's not invited. He's not with us, but I suppose <laughs> it's a public, yeah, it's a public place, mate. It's a restaurant. <laughs> he goes and sits in a booth by him with his mate. You know, oh, it's ridiculous. And, and then, of course, the very, the very end of the movie where they interview uh, Billy and, and Steve Sanders and, and Steve kind of, you know, he has this change of heart and he's like, well, he, you know, he thinks Steve Weeby's a, pretty cool guy and then bully just glares at him for <laughs> like five seconds straight the camera rests on his face and it's incredible they say what do you think billy and he says i don't have enough knowledge of the situation <laughs> and steve is incredibly uncomfortable because he's realized that he's sort of <laughs> been too honest he's pissed off the master or something oh my gosh one of the things that occurred to me while watching both of these films, and it, and it alludes to something that you started with, Sarah, around speed cubers, which I'll come back to, um, was just the, the heart of both of these films being quite different. You know, there's this, there's this lovely kindness in the speed cubers, which actually, I, I, I cried a couple of times while watching that. I was so touched by the friendship of um, Max Park and Felix Zemdig, uh, I believe that's his last name, and... Um, but then there was just this, this horrible ickiness about the King of Kong with this competition. And it really reminded me of our conversation that we had around Catfish and Tickled. And that mm. Catfish was this, you know, at the heart of Catfish was this quite lovely, sad, but lovely story of this, this woman. And in Tickled, it's this really sad, aggressive, sort of, I guess, objectively hateful man. Um, and I, and I just thought there was a nice connection there between these two movies. Like really that. good point. Yeah, and I just, um, it's just interesting. I guess it is interesting. Right? Yeah, it's interesting. You're so right. It's so interesting because we're talking about, okay, they're two quite different scenarios within the, the universal set of human nature. But you're so right. Those are two really, those are perspectives driven by different things, aren't they? So if we do go on to speed cubers, we've got two people Admittedly, they're a lot younger, so I can't really, um, I can't really criticize them for having wasted their entire lives into middle age on something that I don't consider to be massively important. They're both still um, within their teens. No, Felix is kind of maybe 22 by now, right? But anyway, they're young. But you're so right. They both want to win. They both want to compete. They will both travel. They will both do whatever they can. They'll practice. They'll work hard. But what a difference in their hearts, particularly Felix's heart towards Max. And uh, I was absolutely blown away by how genuinely, authentically um, supportive and, uh, and kind he was towards the person who is his, you know, not, what's the word, like not enemy, but kind of rival. Like, rival. rival is kind of the nemesis. You're absolutely right, you know extraordinary and they're young people good old young people and i i really liked the like 
if we talk, you know, if we look at the King of Kong and the sort of obsessive nature of what they were doing and how it just <laughs> was not kind to the people around them, they formed this cult that was very exclusive and elitist. And, you know, there's that whole thing with Mr. Awesome or whatever his name is. And <laughs> just this... Oh my gosh. <laughs> But then you've got um, you've got the speed cubers, and the motivation of of, of uh, Max's parents was to build social skills. And I just loved that that, that 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 wasn't the goal for them. The goal wasn't for him to become a champion. The goal was for him to find community and find friends and to find ways to learn how to be pro-social. And I love that story that the mother tells about, or the father, one of them, about how he wins and he mimics the podium. Um, it's really lovely. It's really lovely. But William, you mentioned that you have some criticisms of the film. So, so yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts? <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I don't disagree with any of what you guys are saying. I, I thought the central, the central relationship between Max and Felix was really, really just, again, lovely is the word of the day. Really, really nice. Um, and I, I did choke up in places. It's, it's really well done. I guess maybe my beef with the speed cubers and this is going to sound really really shallow maybe it's just the title i don't think it should be called the speed cubers why because the movie is not about speed cubing <laughs> um to, to kind of draw comparisons with king of kong but also with other documentaries around the king of kong like mid-2000s had a bunch of these like spellbound uh there was also that um that will shorts documentary about the new york times crossword which is really similar in structure as well um and then you know the interview like uh, uh larry king and and john stewart and stuff uh but really what i find one of my favorite things about king of kong and and Stalbound and all the other all the other documentaries is that it gives you a window into the subculture that you might not understand much about before right whether it's the donkey Kong or competitive retro gaming or crosswords or spelling bees and it goes into what makes these people tick what the competitions are all about why there's competition what the rules are the history of of the craft if you could, could call it that and Sp speedcubers doesn't do any of that it's not interested in that i don't think um i i guess i was going and thinking that yes there would be the story of friendship because that that's what i heard going in like this was the anti-king of kong this is the movie that took the relationship that that toxic relationship between rivals and turned it you know flipped it on its head um, but also to give me, like, I don't know how to solve a Rubik's Cube. I've never solved a Rubik's Cube in my life. And it would be really cool to see something along the lines of how they talk about, you know, Mario's jumping and the barrel stage yes. and how you need to do the elevators and why Donkey Kong is actually so hard. And what they show you in Speed Cubers, I felt was really, really lacking. You see a whole bunch of very, very quick imagery. You see montages of mostly young people doing speed cubing, but you never find out the stakes. You never find out the rules. There's no history of how the Rubik's Cube actually works. Um, the movie is not about any of this. It's not really about anything apart from the central relationship. And I found that to be really, really lacking. That's such a good point. And it is only 40 minutes, which is a very, very unusual. It's not a short film. It's not a feature film. And so, you know, you could argue, well, goodness, they had at least 40 more, 40 more minutes up their sleeve. You know, hey, to, we would have watched an 80 minute film about oh, it. For sure, for sure. I, William, I think it's interesting you say it's about the title because I would say 
um, I was really happy that the film was only 40 minutes and it only focused on that relationship. Mm. And I, I wouldn't have, I would have been quite critical of the film if it had got into some of the areas that you talked about, not because I wouldn't be interested in that, but because I didn't feel that that's what the film was about. And I, I applaud the movie for being really focused and not having to be feature length in order to just tell the story that it's telling, you know, the story is about their relationship, but I hear your point about the title because I guess it's about a promise. It's the, it's a promise of both the genre and, um, and marketing that, that, you know, you feel was not kept. Um, as someone who has, who does know how to solve a Rubik's cube and I've learned those algorithms that they talked about. I've forgotten wow. them now, but, but there was a time where I used to be able to pick up a Rubik's cube and solve it. Not in Wait, six, is that the one where you peel the stickers off and then you put them? <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, oh. I mean, I couldn't solve it. And my, my, my solving time was probably three minutes, not six seconds. Um, mm. But um, so I, I sort of saw that section that you talked about, William. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Yep, that's how I did it. But yeah, it's interesting. I think I just think it's a, it's a matter of promise, isn't it? Both genre and title. Yeah. That's a good, good. That, that's a good point because, as William has said, I, I kind of, I do agree. It's not about speed cubing. It's about the relationship. And for me, actually, it was about. I was thinking, as an English teacher, what's the thematic statement of this film? And it's something along the lines of, um, people can be compassionate to their rivals even in the face of competition. That for me is kind of what it's about. So that I guess is the friendship side of things, but it isn't even just two guys who aren't dicks actually being nice to each other. It's really key that Max Park is, he is on the spectrum, isn't he? So, uh, and as the father says, he looks like a very tall 17 year old, but he has a sort of an emotional or mental age of sort of more seven or eight. That's really pertinent. And for me, what was incredibly moving was, um, and as you sort of said, Jeremy, you know, the fact that the parents had said, for us, this was an opportunity for Max to social skills and to have that interaction and to create a community that might otherwise have been um, difficult for him. And so that's really key. It's a huge part of the film. As I say, it's not just two nice guys, but I guess, as you say about the promise of the film based on the title, what would, what might they have called it to, to have it be about, um, you know, um, I don't know how competitive gaming can help young people with autism. Um, I, you know. I'm just going to toss this out there. Felix and Max. And the, <laughs> and, uh, the and is an ampersand. Yeah. No. <laughs> There's potentially an idea in the spectrum of colors of um, a Rubik's cube and, Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess my, I, I, I don't know, the, the, the thing with the title, maybe I just found the competition to be completely lacking in comprehension or suspense because I, I just did not know what was going on. Like they showed you people solving cubes with their feet and the difference between the three times three and the four times four. And innately you understand, yes, a four times four cube would be more difficult. But why? Why is it more difficult? And why is the three times three the world record holder when all the other records don't, you know, don't count? And what's the deal with the other competitors? Because you see them, they look like interesting people. Again, the film doesn't care. And mm. I'm not saying that the film should care, but the film just doesn't. Mm. It doesn't care about any of this stuff. So that when, when Dennis wins at the end, I kind of didn't, I didn't feel anything, not for Max 
awful Felix, awful Dennis, awful anyone. I will give you that, William. I think that I had no idea what was going on at the end. And I also didn't even know who the, the person was that won. I was like, oh, there's... This guy's not even been set German up as a... Yeah. Like, there might have been one shot of him, maybe? I, yeah, I yeah, they were just German brothers, eh, that came first and third. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally, I totally hear you. And it's interesting you say you didn't feel anything, because as much as I really dislike King of Kong, and I never want to watch it again, and I haven't even started talking about the production values, I mean, I know it can't be helped, because the footage is what the footage is, but it honestly just felt like watching a whole lot of grainy home video. I mean, it was... The extent to which it was well edited was that it followed a narrative structure and I was able, you know, to go, oh, he's the winner, now he's not the winner. He's the winner again, now he's not the winner. Oh, a little bit of dramatic tension, let's deliver a videotape in a box to a bunch of nerds. I'm sorry, shouldn't use the word nerds. I don't mean that disparagingly. <laughs> but I'm just saying, <laughs> that film and, you know, honestly- Sarah, we're, we're three people talking about movies on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about other nerds. <laughs> but, but I did not feel moved. Oh, I'm li I lie. I felt moved by the compassion in Speed Cubers, but there was no dramatic or particular excitement because no one was that bummed out that they lost. You know what I mean? Everyone was so gracious and like, oh, well, it's being on the podium that counts or it's playing the game that counts, which is an excellent message. I'm not suggesting that it isn't, but, but yeah, there isn't that sort of same dramatic tension. Watching we... a clock go from 6.259 to 6.4623, whatever, you know, but yeah. Well, let's, I find that interesting. And, and back to a point that William made earlier about all of those, those, net, those not Netflix, um, those documentaries that came out in the sort of mid to late 2000s. And there being a real crafting to those. And I think that whilst I totally agree with you in terms of, you know, photography of the King of Kong, it is a really well-crafted, like I said, David and Goliath story that I think mm -hmm. has been quite manipulated. But just thinking about Netflix and um, the, the sort of the wealth of documentaries that are now on Netflix, and, and that's been a big way that I've consumed documentaries now, um, and the general quality being, I find, not, not always the greatest. There's an interesting journey there with, um, I don't know, I just think it's interesting. Back in 2007, I would have seen this film at the Rialto Cinema in Wellington, and I would have gone in, and I was working at the cinema at the time, and I would have got my free ticket because it was owned by the same company, and I would have gone in on a Friday night or whatever and gone and watched whatever they were putting out, and you'd watch these great little opuses like The King of Kong, not that I had seen it before, but, you know, you'd watch, you know, Double Dare is another one that I think about, which is the Zoe Bell and Jenny mm, Epper documentary. That's great. Jesus Camp, you know, about the, the sort of yeah, evangelical yeah. movement of, of young, young children being in, you know, Jesus, sort of that space in the States. You know, but, and then now it's on Netflix, but you talk about it in a different way. I'm just putting it out there. Two very different ways to consume content mm. and the different ways the films are made. Very what say true. you? <laughs> yeah, very, very, very true, Jeremy. I mean, all, all the the documentary, like Jesus Camp, is a great example of this. They, these feel like these feel like crafted movies. Um, it, movies with a capital no films with a capital yeah. F, right? Yeah. Whereas Netflix, it's not that it devalues things; it just changes what media is. Maybe because everything's at your fingertips, I, I feel like, does that devalue it somewhat? 
Well, maybe because maybe they have lower expectations to use a, a teaching term or a band teaching term because they know that we're going to like the Jeffrey Epstein documentary, which I did manage to um, sit through the four episodes of. It's not a great film um, or series or whatever documentary speaking. I mean, you know, it's it's got the information and, and I guess that's what you're going for. But it's not a great film in the way that capturing the Freedmen's, which I think is around to, is that around 2007, eight or something? I mean, that was an, an incredible document. I mean, there are millions, aren't there? Three identical strangers, uh, the Wolf Pack. Um, wolf Pack? Something like that. Amazing actual films. The Act of Killing. Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> Although that was a little later, um, but man, that, that movie, that movie. That film, that film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so maybe the things that are coming out on Netflix, they just, they're like, oh, look, I don't know. I, maybe they just have sort of, it's got to have high production values because that's what everyone expects nowadays, but it doesn't have to be a great film and people will watch it anyway and they won't complain because it's part of a subscription. So, I mean, I didn't pay. For example, we've just had the New Zealand International Film Festival, yeah? Uh, the world's first hybrid festival in 2020. We watched the majority of our films online. We paid for each of them. And there were instances where I'd pay the $10 and we'd sit through um, what I won't name names and uh, it really wasn't worth it. Whereas if it had been part of a Netflix subscription, we would have gone, oh yeah, that wasn't that good. Oh, well, never mind and move on with your life, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that was kind of with, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have seen The Last Dance with um, that Michael Jordan docker series uh, no. from ESPN. No. It's, it was like the, the, the big deal uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I watched one episode and I just, I was like, okay, this, is, this isn't for me. Mm. I kind of dislike this quite a bit. And that was that. And it was okay because I had a million other things to watch. Yes. And it hadn't cost you in a way. I mean, I always yeah. talk of Netflix being free. And it's not really just because my husband pays for that subscription and I buy the neon. But I mean, it feels once you've paid your subs, it feels like it's all free, you know? Yeah, yeah. I tell you one show that this that I really thought of a lot while watching these, and it connects to our Netflix discussion, is Love on the Spectrum, which is the new Australian-produced Netflix docu series about uh, young adults who are on the, I guess, autism spectrum. I don't know if that's, the, I guess, I don't know the appropriate phrasing of it, but definitely on the spectrum, who are trying to find romance and trying to navigate the world of dating. Um, and it's, I've found it a really lovely show. I think that it highlights highlights the spectrum and kind of the challenges and opportunities that both families and the individuals who are on the spectrum kind of navigate in this space. There is potentially an exploitative nature, but I guess that's always the case with when you're highlighting a, a, a community or a, or a worldview like um, William, you were referring to before around what documentary can do. Mm. But it did, remind, it did remind me of this series when I was watching The King of Kong, particularly when it was getting into Steve Wiebe's obsession and his you know, the things that were driving him and some of the challenges that his family members were, were claiming he was facing. I thought, oh, this is similar to Love on the Spectrum and the way that they're, they're crafting a picture of this person and, and where they've come from in terms of their social interactions. And then, of course, I watched The Speed Cubers, which is even more so because it's, there's an Australian-ness about it with Felix's um, accent and, and mm. where he lives, but also the, the parents, the role that the parents play with Max Park um, and, and that's part of the reason why I was so emotionally touched because I think one of the things that is very clear from Love on the Spectrum is 
the role of the parents in teaching their young people how to navigate social situations and teaching them phrases and ways of being that they can mimic to, to help get to the things that they're trying to communicate that don't necessarily come uh, as naturally as someone who's not further on the spectrum. And, um, mm. and that's what really touched my heart about Felix and, and what he was um, kind of doing, because that's another challenge that the people in love on the spectrum face is growing up in school and being with peers and not, not having the, the grace that a parent or, or, or a loved one would give them to help them, you know, navigate that. But what I will say, and to kind of bring it full circle to where this conversation um, started uh, about Netflix, there's five episodes and it just sort of ends. You know, like the first couple of episodes are really strong. The later fourth and fifth, it's like, oh yeah, this is okay. And then it ends and there's no real arc to it and what you'd expect from say a documentary film mm. or a TV series. And I think that's because probably Netflix knows they just produce, a, if they produce a good first few episodes, people will watch and it will get the rankings up on their algorithm and then people are happy to move on. I don't know. That's, it's an interesting dynamic. It's more disposable content in a way. I think so, yeah. Mean? Yeah. Jeremy, I don't want to, I, I, I want to touch on something that you alluded to that you made me think just now. Steve Wiebe's wife sort of says, doesn't she? I mean, I don't know if he's on the spectrum or not, but he has this ability to concentrate and to be very single-minded and blah, blah, blah. I guess that's one tiny, wincy, wincy, tinsy potential comparison of our two, our two core films here. But I realize in The Speed Cubers, we hear very much more about Max than we do about Felix's life, for obvious reasons. So we get a real insight into this one character. Um, and the same with Steve Wiebe versus Billy Mitchell. It's all very well we have Billy Mitchell's very proud parents lolling back in that office going, he can do anything he wants. He's always <laughs> going to be a success. He's Billy Mitchell. But... His very Fl Fl Floridian Jewish parents. It's, his dad looks like Danny DeVito in makeup. It's amazing. <laughs> but we don't find out anything about the real Billy Mitchell. All we have is the facade. We have the hair, the restaurateur, the wife with the rather big boobies, um, oh. and the, the whole kind of like, this is, I'm USA, this is who I am. With Steve, we get a real vulnerability. We have genuine face-to-face -face interviews with him where they say, what if I told you the Guinness Book of Records? And he's like, are, are you, is this for real? Are you kidding me? You know, he's like a real person. So. I think that's, I th that's intentional. That's that crafting, right? They've intentionally, like I thought it was interesting that we didn't even know he had a wife until the final, final few moments of the movie. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's to help elevate his villain, villainy, isn't it? Well then, that yeah, I mean yes, and then maybe then we're running into a whole nother podcast about how truthful documentary really ought to be, <laughs> and how editorialized and biased it can be, and you know, or you might say, look, man, Billy Mitchell speaks for himself. You do not need to villainize that guy. Just put him on camera, let him, you know, contradict himself about whether if you need to turn up. I mean, there's this extraordinary moment towards the end where he's spouting some rubbish about well it's not rubbish it's true about if you know really i think that if you if you you're going to compete you need to turn up to it's like dude you have spent the entire film on the phone with your horrible sock feet on your on your <laughs> coffee table you know oh so, it's, sarah it's it's at that moment that the filmmakers do something really really i i would say uh low-handed which is they cut they intercut that footage with footage of his video that he sent in to the, the guys. 
And it's like, you know, just to hammer home a point that he's yeah. just so full of crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think as well, like, a doc, you know, to answer, to answer that kind of comment about <laughs> having a whole other podcast, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the reality of filmmaking. No matter how truthful you think it is, it's always a perspective. Yeah. And it's always yeah. telling a nar- crafting a narrative. And if it's not, then you get kind of a halfway house film like um, Speed Cubers. Mm. Yeah. Or, or, or if, if you go completely in on the visuals, you get a movie like Samsara, which is, it's about what you take away from the beautiful visuals and nothing else. Right. Or Koyana Skatsi. Yeah. Um, I had said in my intro that we'll come back to what Seth Gordon has also done, which has absolutely no relevance now, other than I should like to say that I was like, that name's familiar. And of course, he's directed heaps of television, but also um, Horrible Bosses and Identity Thief. Mm. And you know me, I love a good Jason Bateman. But anyway, despite the fact that neither of those are, are like amazing films, they're pretty solid films and they're not about very nice people, are they? Yeah, he, also did, he did Pixels with Adam Sandler, which is an awful movie. Oh. Just, it's so bad. And what did you say, Jeremy? The Manipulators. No, that is not a name of a film. I just, it I'm could just be. Seeing, I'm just seeing a connection between <laughs> horrible bosses. Um, uh, the Identity Thief and uh, The King of Kong. I don't know whether the, uh, some sort of manipulation, dastardly deeds is a part of Pixels, William, but maybe the, the entire film is uh, <laughs> a, a one-up on <laughs> the audiences. What? But you know what? When you mentioned earlier about Catfish and Tickled, and I love Tickled, and I think David and Dylan did the most extraordinary job on that film, but the only frustration I had at the end of it was David D'Amato, who was the villain, had was very, very clearly painted as a villain, and it was indisputable, and that's absolutely fine. But what I was left with was a desperation to understand why he had become the way he'd become. And sadly, that hasn't been possible. Um, and that's what I mean about Billy Mitchell. I, I mean, I would have liked to understand a bit more what drives the jerk, you know, whereas with the others, we kind of do know. I mean, you, you kind of see glimpses of that, right? You see that photo from his childhood where he first competed with, with Steve Sanders. Um, you see, like, a lot of, a lot of his, his business, his hot sauce, um, yeah. his, his restaurant. Like, there's, there's definitely glimpses of that, but you're right. Like, it definitely compared to Steve Weeby, like, it's, it's apples and oranges. Mm. So, guys, can we finish up by talking about kind of the, the, the cultural resonance of both these movies with 2020? Because I, I, I found that to be really quite powerful with both these movies, uh, watching them again, well, watching Kim Con again and Speed uh, for the first time. They're about very different facets of of modern times right because i don't know about you guys but to me king of kong it's it's about america it's it's about these two very diametrically opposed faces of america that have become even more diametrically opposed ever since trump came into office kind of this you know the all american gung-ho blowhard who doesn't have the actions to, to match up with his words compared to the, you know, the um, homegrown, nice guy, evangelical Christian, you know, dad, just a, a wholesome America. Mm. And it's, it's so interesting to watch this movie that came out, you know, 10, 15 years ago and to see what has become of kind of this dichotomy over the last couple of years. It's just been completely blown out of proportion. 
And on the other hand, speed cubers, which you guys have very, very clearly brought up this as well. Like it's, it's about hope for young people, really. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it is quite wonderful to see how happy all these, these kids are. And yes, they are pretty obsessive about this hobby stash competition, but they seem to be getting along. Um, I, I do like that moment at the end when neither Felix nor Max wins. And they're, uh, I think Felix is the one talking to, to Dennis, the eventual winner. And they're, they're saying like, oh, should we, should we give Dennis some room to run up? Like it all seems to be very friendly competition. And just in today's climate of, of real horrible, horrible people running horrible countries, mm. it was really, really nice to see. And the international connection as well. You know, it's, it's mm. multiple different nations and cultures and, and countries coming together and sharing in something that is like bringing people together as opposed to wearing an American flag as a tie. Or as opposed to the world being brought together by um, a pandemic that we're all suffering under, but instead everyone getting really divisive and really like, well, they're doing it wrong and they're a pack of idiots and they obviously hate old people and all that stuff, huh? I, I really like the connections that you're making, William. I think it's a really, I hadn't thought about it in that, that sense, but you're absolutely right. And it's, it's uh, I, I don't really know what, what much more to make of it than just, I guess, it being an interesting commentary on how things have evolved in the last 13 years. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can find us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode, or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time, and until then, ka kite anō.